Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway and we're recording this at 13 hours GMT on Wednesday the 8th of April. Our main stories, the WHO warns countries in Europe not to lift their coronavirus lockdowns. The French economy has been tipped into recession. But in South Africa, the pandemic has pushed gangs into some unlikely alliances. Also in the podcast... The way it will work is you will take five deep breaths in and each time you'll hold your breath for five seconds. On the sixth deep breath, you will take it in and you will do a big cough. A breathing technique which may help sufferers of COVID-19. Europe remains in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic. According to the latest tally, the continent now has three quarters of a million cases, while four European nations account for nearly half of the world's deaths. And although there are signs of a slowdown in the outbreaks in Italy and Spain, the WHO has warned against any relaxation of lockdowns. Knowledge of COVID-19 and some positive signs from some countries do not yet represent victory. They offer a rare chance for us to tighten our grip on the virus. Now is not the time to relax measures. It is the time to once again double and triple our collective efforts to drive towards suppression with the whole support of the society. Hans Kluge, the WHO's regional director for Europe. The European Union itself is showing the strain, with finance ministers unable to agree a rescue package and the organisation's top scientist resigning over what he says is a lack of coordination, as I heard from Gavin Lee in Brussels. Mauro Ferrari, who's a fairly well-renowned Italian scientist working in his specialism in fighting cancer, particularly in the States in the past few years, was headhunted for the job. Uh, he's been in the job for three months, started in January, and he spoke about a, a vision of, of changing the European research body and saying that you know, they will basically, if they can come up with this moment where they're being tested, a big project of giving the best resources to the best scientists, that he wanted to change the way it would. And, and what he says, he basically writes this two-page open letter to explain his resignation to say that trying to force this project through was ultimately at the most dissolution process that he's been through in his life, that he says it was, he was so despondent by the Brussels bureaucracy because of a lack of coordination. He gives two examples. He says he tried to set up this programme to combat COVID-19, but it was rejected on no decent grounds. He said he was disturbed. And then he was approached by the Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, to give some ideas about how they can really get member states together to come up with ways to fight the virus. And he said that, working directly, that issue created an internal political thunderstorm and it completely led to the disintegration of his idea. So that's his take. The European Commission have issued a pretty anodyne statement in response, response, but they have said it is regretful and they do wish the professor well for the future. I think any seasoned Brussels watchers over the years will probably be right to say that the European Commission will not get involved in any personal battle on this one. But one MEP, Christine Ayler, who leads um, research legislation for the EU, he said he rejects Mr. Ferrari's claim and he claimed the proposal was simply an egotistic window dressing 
public relations stand. But are we seeing any signs of a shared approach? I know some patients have been moved to, to different countries, but then there's this huge disagreement over the finances. So there's two different things here. The patients being moved from countries, a lot of that going on. There's a lot of, for example, the Czech Republic uh, donating thousands of face mask respirators, even setting up tents in Luxembourg in France, of, you know, sharing around of equipment, Germany taking patients for their hospitals from you know, Austria, from France, from Italy too. But, I mean, some of this is through NATO, some of this is through the EU. When it comes to the big test, what Angela Merkel called the biggest test for the EU and what the, the head of the Eurozone group yesterday said was going to be the biggest meeting, this is about how you resolve the crisis financially, how you help those governments like Italy and Spain. They had an all-night meeting on teleconference yesterday. It didn't get anywhere. They're resuming tomorrow. Gavin Lee in Brussels. Coronavirus restrictions in France have been tightened several times. They're currently in place until at least the middle of next week, but they are likely to be extended. And Paris has banned people from exercising outside during most of the day. At the same time, the French economy has suffered its biggest contraction since the Second World War. Hugh Schofield is our correspondent in France. He told us first about the new clampdown in the capital. They're to stop people uh, going for their daily exercise during sort of peak hours, if you like, daylight hours. So between 10, and, 10 in the morning and 7 in the evening now, it's impossible or it's not, not allowed to go out to do your jogging, basically. Um, you can jog before that, go for a run before that, or you can go for a run after that in the evening, but not, not between 10 and 7 because the authorities had decided that too many people were, were going out and going to the same places. Parks are shut, so they would tend to congregate along the banks of the Seine and so on, um, and there, there were pictures of people just you know being too close together, too packed together. Plus, at this time, between 10 and 7 in the, in the evening, uh, there are people out doing deliveries, people are out working, there's, a, there's, there's people out going shopping. So there's a, a, you know, there's a fair amount of people on the, on the street. And the idea is to therefore um, keep people's exercise to those times of day when there aren't so many other people out there. I mean, no, no one's suggesting, I don't think, that there's been a kind of mass civil disobedience in Paris because the people who were out jogging before were, were being perfectly within the, the rules, uh, but it was just too many of them. Yeah, this time yesterday we heard Austria's plan for a, a, a phased lifting of its restrictions and no sign of that happening in France there. No, no. In fact, if anything, there's a bit of a robot because a week ago uh, the Prime Minister did speak about various scenarios for leaving uh, the confinement. Uh, it's, it's as if he's been asked by his advisers not to raise that too loudly because the latest is quite clearly preparing France for another extension. As you said at the start there, it's April the 15th next week when it it's officially ends the confinement, but I don't think anyone really thinks it will end then, at, the, at least to the end of the month, I think, is what it most people are, are prepared for. And tell us about those uh, economic problems that France, like many other countries, is suffering. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's just numbers on on a picture we all perfectly well understand. I mean, you know, in in the, the fortnight of March, where the um, the, the confinement took place, the activity was down 32%. A third of the economy basically wasn't working. And in broader, you know, macroeconomic figures, that uh, is a decline in GDP, 6% for the quarter, which te technically puts France into a recession because the end of 2019 was also a small dip. So two, two consecutive quarters means France is now in a, in a recession. And looking back historically, uh, May, the events of May 68 saw a huge turn down in the economy, but that wasn't as big as this. It's back in the Second World War that you have to draw the, the biggest. The, the last time it was as big as this uh, was, was that long ago. Hugh Schofield in France. 
The pandemic has helped bring some communities together and even led to some unlikely alliances. In South Africa, a truce has broken out in the notorious gang-ridden townships around Cape Town. Rivals have stopped their turf wars and are using their drug delivery networks to bring food to poor households. South Africa is currently in the middle of a lockdown and many people are struggling to buy basic necessities. Andrew Harding has this report. This is the second one because we added with six, right? It was two, two, two. Food parcels being loaded for delivery by some unexpected volunteers, the most notorious gangsters in South Africa. For decades, drug gangs like the Americans and the Clever Kids have terrorised the windswept plains outside Cape Town. 13 people were killed in 48 hours in... Following the killing of 11 people over the weekend... 25 people have been murdered in Cape Town over These the streets are some of the most dangerous in the world. But the virus and a nationwide lockdown have changed some people's priorities. I got a phone call from two different gang leaders, both saying, Andy, I've never asked you for anything, but we're starving. This is Andy Steele-Smith, an Australian pastor who now works with the local gangs. And I just thought, hey, if these guys are starving, they're at the top of the food chain. Uh, The rest of the community is going to be in serious, serious strife. And so, remarkably, rival gangs have started working side by side to deliver food to the communities they usually terrorise. And they're drawing on their own particular set of skills. The best distributors in the country, they know how to distribute things, hey? They're used to distributing other other white powders, <laughs> um, but still, they're distributing things and they, they know everybody. Lord God, I just come before you and I give you glory for this day, for the sun, uh, for the safety that you're giving A group us. prayer for the American gang before they set off. Thank you, thank you. I should mention that because of the lockdown, it's not me holding the microphone. I'm in Johannesburg while producer Karen Scoonby is doing the hard work. So what does the community make of the gang's new strategy? There's relief for sure that a ceasefire has taken hold. We rely on one another to help each other, yeah? Even if it's gangsters, even if it's people who don't... If it's not, it's not gangsters, but we rely on each other just to help one another because if that people don't have something, we have to help them. And that's what we are based on, yeah? There's no such thing as gangsterism. In these times, all of us stand together. But let's be honest, most people here are almost certainly too scared to say what they really think about the gangs. And the authorities are sceptical, to put it mildly. I don't trust ceasefires um, imposed or introduced by gangsters because they last only for as long as the gangsters need them to last. JP Smith deals with security on the city council. I don't think it exonerates you when you've done so much evil. One good deed doesn't suddenly wipe it all away. Maybe they can um, commit to slightly more long-term good desist their membership of the criminal enterprise they're involved in, put down the firearms permanently, stop running extortion rackets and protection rackets for local businesses and taxis, and stop intimidating and robbing residents. Then, then we're good. How many cases have there been in your neighbourhood? I've arranged to talk by phone with two gang leaders. Do you think the role of the gangs, your role, may be changed by this experience? Yes, maybe as well. When it's peace, you are free to go everywhere you want to go. And that's what's happening now, yes? Yes. And do you think that will last? No, I can't say anything like Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not, yes. So once the virus is over, maybe the fighting will start again? Maybe the fighting will start again. But I trust in God. God will make a way. So a temporary ceasefire 
and a temporary lockdown, and just the sliver of a chance that the virus will bring lasting change to some of the most dangerous streets in the world. That report by Andrew Harding. A few days ago, the author of the Harry Potter books, J.K. Rowling, revealed that she had had all the symptoms of COVID-19 but was now better. And she urged people to watch a video of a breathing technique, which she said had helped her a lot. Here's a bit of it. You will then lay flat on uh, your bed with a pillow in front of you, taking slightly deeper breaths for the next 10 minutes because you've got to understand that the majority of your lung is on your back, not on your front. So... By lying on your back, you're closing off more of the airways, the smaller airways. So it's very important that you guys understand this. The doctor in the footage is Safaraz Munshi from Queen's Hospital in London. He told my colleague Justin Webb why he'd made the video. My mother, father had COVID for the preceding 10 days and um, dad recovered quite well. But unfortunately, mum started deteriorating and she'd become so weak that she was laying on the couch for prolonged periods. And so the day before, my brother, who's also a doctor, and I were FaceTiming and remotely assessing oxygen levels, pulse and temperature, and mum's oxygen levels weren't picking up. So we did some simple respiratory exercises, and initially we were panicking, but oxygen levels came up, we were reassured. And then on the basis of that, the next day I spoke to my colleague, fantastic uh, lady to work with, Sue Elliott, and, and she said, why don't you make a quick video? And the purpose of it was purely, if I'm helping my mum, and, and I can't describe to you the level of anxiety and concern that I had mm. throughout the whole of this. When she did what you told her to, yeah. and you're looking quite stern when you're, when you're issuing these instructions. When she followed yeah. those instructions, it, you're yeah. absolutely convinced that it, that it allowed her lungs to be reinvested re with energy. It's not formal advice, yeah. but it's a, it's a simple breathing technique that you can use um, that can help to oxygenate the lungs and open up the small airways because I've seen people laying down in bed for a day or two with influenza, but my mum was like this for seven, eight days. So this is now a prolonged period and she's laying on her back. So I realise that she's not oxygenating a lung and then you get something called mucus plugging and you do get secondary infections. Tell me, how is she now? Mum's certainly improved and that's why I'm smiling. That's why I'm on radio today. Dr Safaraz Munshi. And still to come on the podcast... Welcome to our first digital rehearsal. Orchestra practice under lockdown. African-Americans are dying in alarming numbers from COVID-19, according to public health officials in the US. In the state of Louisiana, black people account for around 70% of coronavirus deaths, despite representing roughly a third of the state's population. So why is this happening? Rebecca Gee is a former secretary of the Louisiana Department of Health and is now at the Louisiana State University School of Medicine in New Orleans. She's been talking to Claire McDonnell. First, I do want to put the numbers into context. Most people who have died are in the what we call the parish or county of Orleans, which is the city of New Orleans, which is about 62 percent African-American, you know, likely because of Mardi Gras and the fact that we did not know the virus was spreading throughout communities. Um, many, many people in uh, New Orleans and the surroundings were exposed. That being said, you know, we have health disparities and 
the COVID epidemic is uh, sort of a societal litmus test. It's showing the dark underbelly of health disparities. It's showing the lack of access to care and where that lack uh, is most um, deadly in our country. People are dying in large part, particularly younger people and African-Americans have higher rates of kidney disease, of diabetes, and of hypertension. And most people who are dying have those underlying conditions, which are more prevalent in African-Americans. And so certainly the fact that the population of African-Americans in Louisiana was sicker prior to this is is really putting them at a disadvantage um, in, in the COVID situation as it does in, in many other situations, including lifespan, frankly, when you look at, you know, regardless of this virus lifespan of African-Americans versus Caucasians, even in the same zip code, can be different. In the press briefing, just in the last few hours, President Trump has acknowledged this disparity. He says we're going to provide support. We're going to release data on the differential uh, between how it how the coronavirus is is affecting the African American community, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as well, who's leading the coronavirus task force in America, said exactly what you just said. He said African Americans have more um, underlying health conditions. So, are you saying that it's essentially social inequity that is is driving all of this? That African Americans have poorer health generally? because of how they live. Well, that, yes, I think that's true. I think that African-Americans, we know that in our country, there are income disparities. Um, We have income disparities between women and men. And if you're an African-American woman, uh, the income disparity is even worse. And so, yes, I mean, these are are tremendous challenges. In addition, African-American families tend to be single-parent families, and those families tend to, to be where mom and grandma or an older parent or auntie is helping with the children. And certainly with social distancing, we are saying, look, if you're older, if you're over 60, try not to be around children. Try not to be near lots of people. And in low-income families and in the U.S., we really don't have appropriate affordable child care. And so these families are, are under great constraint because the older generation is having to watch children while you know, mom or dad are going to work. And this is exactly the population that shouldn't be around kids right now. Professor Rebecca Gee of the Louisiana State University School of Medicine in New Orleans. Belarus, in Europe but not part of the EU, has long been criticised for its lack of democracy. So how is it coping with the coronavirus outbreak? President Alexander Lukashenko has resisted calls for a nationwide lockdown suggesting instead that vodka or a sauna would fight the disease. And football matches are still being played there, even though the sport is on hold across the rest of Europe. It's meant the Belarusian Premier League has surged in popularity, with fans around the world tuning in. With almost 900 coronavirus cases confirmed in Belarus, locals are increasingly abandoning stadiums, worried about their health, as our correspondent Sarah Rainsford reports. For most Europeans, this is a sound from life before coronavirus cleared the streets. In Belarus, though, there are still crowds and buskers on the metro. And there's football. 
This is the last league still running on the entire continent. And all because President Alexander Lukashenko can't see what all the coronavirus fuss is about. A week ago, he skated over to a state TV reporter after a hockey match. There are no viruses here, he said. Can you see any flying around? And she shook her head. This is the same man who's claimed working the fields with tractors could help prevent COVID-19. He also suggested a shot of vodka. Our president maybe decided to ignore the situation and pretend that nothing is going on serious. So the leaders of our football decided to keep playing. That's Alexei, a Dinamo Minsk fan, who points out there is no opposing the man who's ruled Belarus since the 1990s. But more and more people are worried about this pandemic. We're not the first country in the world that faced the, the virus. So Italians laughed off the virus first, but then it uh, went uh, worse and worse. I'm afraid that this attitude of our authorities and our people could lead to the same result. Alexei skipped this game a week ago. He's usually right in the thick of it behind the goal. The fans who did go heard tannoyed health warnings and they had their hands sprayed and a temperature check at the turnstiles. And now, for the first time, Global audiences are watching the action. The obscure Belarusian game has suddenly become hugely popular with football-starved fans all over the world. With no one else playing, 11 countries, including Russia, have bought up the broadcast rights. There's a lot of people around the world watching Belarusian football now. I spoke to Elis Bakai, who's a striker with Dinamo Brest. This is good for the players who play here. Now it's famous, you know. And, uh, I think and Ronaldo and Messi now is jealous because only, only here you can play football. But he and others are getting nervous. Every time when I, when I finish the training, I try to come at home and to stay at home because, of course, it's, it's, not, uh, it's dangerous to go outside. So just as a new global audience grows, the crowd at home is thinning. At Dinamo Minsk, even the ultras, the ultimate hard men of football, are staying home now. Alexei says they've been calling online for others to do the same, and he tells me he's thinking of his mum. As a football fan, we're used to taking risks, but now we need to think about our parents that are not getting younger. Our easy attitude towards this problem can result in huge damage to other people, not us. The Football Federation says it's assessing the situation daily. But for as long as President Lukashenko declares quarantines and lockdowns pointless, it seems the footballers will have to play on in stadiums that are emptying by the week. That report by Sarah Rainsford. Now for a quick update on the condition of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's being treated in intensive care in a London hospital, suffering from severe symptoms of coronavirus. Downing Street says Mr Johnson remains clinically stable and is responding to treatment. Bans in lockdown countries around the world have turned to video messaging apps to continue playing together. But imagine trying to conduct rehearsals if you're a 60-piece orchestra. Here in the UK, that's exactly what the Devon Philharmonic has been doing. Siobhan Leahy has this report. Welcome to our first digital rehearsal. (laughs) 
While the UK is in lockdown, the Devon Philharmonic Orchestra's weekly rehearsals are looking and sounding a bit different. On Thursday evenings, rather than meeting up in the city of Exeter, musical director Leo Geyer starts recording a Facebook Live video. And as he conducts, his 60-strong orchestra watch and play along from their own homes. They respond to him with online messages. And Leo says it's been really important to keep the rehearsals going. I was really keen to make sure that we could try and continue not only our music making, but that really important sense of community spirit and coming together to socialise and just generally have a good time. It might not be conventional, but for now it's keeping them in tune as Gillian Taylor on violin and Ben Edmonds on oboe explain. Playing music with people is a very special thing and that remaining connected is very important for all of us. It's important for our well-being. It was quite challenging playing along, uh, but definitely helped me to notice the bits that I needed to do some practice on because I could hear myself so clearly. We did it! It's not just rehearsals that orchestras are attempting. Quarantined classical musicians from all over the world have been finding a virtual way to come together and perform at-home concerts, from the National Orchestra of France to the Qatar Philharmonic and the West Australian Symphony Orchestra, to name just a few. Using audio and video technology, the musicians film themselves playing their individual parts from their own houses. Then it's stitched together to sound like this from the Arctic Philharmonic in Scandinavia with Grieg's Holberg Suite. That report by Siobhan Lee. And that's all from us for now, but there'll be an updated version of the Global News podcast later. I'm Oliver Conway. Until next time, goodbye. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.